Hi everyone, this is Umer and you're tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. Oats is part of the Harbinger Media Network, a community of left-wing listener-supported Canadian podcasts. Other podcasts on the network include The Alberta Advantage and Tech Won't Save Us. Check out harbingermedianetwork.com to see the full list of podcasts that are part of the network. This episode of Oats for Breakfast is a follow-up from the last episode we published on agriculture, technology, and tradition. This time around, Connor, Ama, and I focus in on one specific case of urban agriculture, the Black Creek Community Farm in Toronto. We chat about the positive aspects of the urban farm project, as well as some of its limits. And we try at the end to connect the discussion about the Black Creek Community Farm to the broad discussion that we had in the previous episode. I think this episode will interest those who want to think about how the broader political and ethical ideals that we have uh, can be implemented in concrete terms and the challenges one runs into when trying to do so. I want to give a shout out to our latest Patreon supporter, Andrew Morgan. This podcast wouldn't be able to function if it wasn't for our patrons, and we're really appreciative of all of them. If you are a listener who is not yet a monthly patron but would like to become one, please go to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast and sign up as a patron. Without further ado, let's get to the discussion. So where did we leave off? Uh, we were going to start uh, discussing urban agriculture. And Connor, you were going to make a point about it. Right. Yeah, I was, I think previously you had asked what we're accomplishing or achieving, I guess, at the Black Creek Community Farm, maybe. It was sure, yeah. If that's a... Or broadly, what is urban agriculture achieving? Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, I would say not much, really. I mean, it's very, very niche, right? So there's not enough of it to have a drastic impact, especially in terms of the food growing potential, like from an educational perspective, you know, you could argue we're having a larger impact, I would say, in terms of, you know, people engaging with the farm and their lives being enriched by having a farm in their neighborhood or, you know, kids learning about where their food comes from when they come for field trips and stuff like that. And certainly, you know, a small portion of the local community has access to some of the organic vegetables, but obviously we're surrounded by way more people than the farm could ever supply food to. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, so just for our audience, the farm is located in the very north of Toronto. Uh, it's the Black Creek Community Farm. It's in the Jane and Finch community, broadly speaking, right? Ward 9, is it? No, Ward 7, the new wards. Okay. It's Ward 7 now. Okay. And I'm one of the residents who benefits from the organic food. I know last time I said I didn't eat any of the organic. I don't. I don't buy organic food, but I did. Right. I yeah. do subscribe to your. Uh, what is that? The CSA. CSA. What is that? Community supported agriculture. Okay. Right. So then you pay ahead of time. I I pay ahead of time, and then I get food every two weeks. That's the option that I chose because I couldn't afford to do the every week thing, but. 
yeah, I, it's nice. The vegetables are good. They taste good. The, te- the carrots taste really good. Mm. You guys are doing a good job on the carrots. Right. Just on the carrots. Carrots actually are one of those ones that you actually notice the difference more profoundly because they're sensitive to pesticide uh, mm. residues and stuff like that. And the tomatoes. The tomatoes taste really good. Mm-hmm. Um, so like last time I was, of course, being very skeptical in the discussion. And not to say that I'm not, but... I do want to say on the po- the positives are like the tomatoes at your farm and locally grown tomatoes, uh, organically grown tomatoes, I guess, seem to me to taste much better than the ones I, I eat, you know, from the grocery store. And the other thing that I like about the farm is going there and it's a nice environment, right? You can walk around. Yeah, right. And it's uh, how many, what, what's the size? Well, including the ravine and everything, it's uh, eight acres. Eight acres? Not including the ravine. Oh, really? The ravine is separate. Oh, okay. There you go. Okay. And yeah, so it's not a huge amount of land, but it's, you know, it's it's kind of tucked in in this urban environment where you wouldn't expect very densely populated area of Toronto. And, you know, one of the things that I love about the farm is the bees. Mm. You go there and you have like the giant sunflowers and then you just see the fattest bees you ever see in your life sitting on there on the sunflowers just lazying around i love that stuff so it's in that way of course it's nice but there are of course there are limits to that form of uh urban agriculture connor you were saying about like well it is a niche sort of thing and it would need to be a much more a broader sort of part of societal organization for it to have the kind of impact that you guys would want it to have. But what about the funding? I mean, I I have a suspicion that the funding, most of the funding I I assume doesn't come from selling the vegetables. No. Um, Can I, can we talk about just sort of the impact just a little bit and then come back to the funding aspect? Because you want to sort of counter I was. I saw how you were looking at Connor when he was not to counter, but to add to that because I okay, the farm is situated on the watershed, right? Um, um, of the city, the Black Creek, and I think, um, in terms of uh, climate resilience, in terms of climate change, in terms of um, um, urban uh, living in urban centers, it is important that you have land like that or the watershed protected. And it is important that you have some level of agriculture happening to kind of help. Um, I don't have the technical terminologies and things for it, but basically the rainwater falls, the rainwater has somewhere to, uh, um, the, the land absorbs it and it also has somewhere to flow and to go, which is very important when we think about flooding within the city. So I think that's one aspect of the impact of having a farm like the Black Creek Community Farm being situated in a watershed. That's one of the important aspects of it. The other part that I want to highlight As opposed to like a condo development or something. As opposed to a condo development. One other aspect that I want to highlight is the fact that um, globally, what, over 60% of the world population live in urban centers who are very far removed from their food source and very far removed and, and don't know how food Food is grown. Um, I see the Black Creek Community Farm as a farm that can be a demonstration farm for people of all walks of life to come and get inspired and to also lead the conversation around environmental justice, social justice issues, uh, like food justice, like all of that. And I think 
that's one of the the big aspect of having something like that in in the community. Connor is right. Eight acres of land farming on what in terms of the actual farmable land is about four, four point five is not enough to feed over eighty thousand people within the Jane and Finch, the broader Jane and Finch community. But I think being able to run school programs, um, our environmental outdoor environmental education program, and bringing children from kindergarten all the way to high school to the farm to experience the farm, participate in the activities, and to learn from it i think it's important for us as a society mm-hmm. as well and, and it helps counter the gang culture right is that how, is that how <laughs> the city promotes this yeah the city yeah 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 definitely that Probably. too just to say on that i, I for our listeners outside of toronto uh, might not know because i didn't know before i moved to toronto that jane and finch is sort of an infamous neighborhood and like the way people talk about it is like oh you are you living in baghdad uh <laughs> And I was like, oh, no, it's fine. Uh, yeah, <laughs> just yeah, walk yeah. into the grocery store. So, and I didn't get shot. Yeah. I'm still here. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think if you look on like Wikipedia, like the one of the first things it'll say uh, is like, the prevalence the of, of gangs and violence yeah, and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Not that I've, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and there's more to our neighborhood than that, as, as you alluded to. So in terms, of, in terms of the impact then of that, and also like we have pollinator gardens on site. So pollinators are bees, are butterflies, are bumblebees, are carpenter, what is it called? Carpenter beetle. Um, so really creating habitat for different uh, insects. Um, and in terms of uh, part of promoting biodiversity, showcasing how all these beings can live in harmony with agriculture as well. I think that's, that's key and, and that's really, really important. Mm-hmm. We also have some interesting, like we have a, a hawk, a red-tailed hawk. Yeah, we have and, a red-tailed uh, hawk, bats, we have deers, we and... have bats, we have um, raccoons and, well, you know, deer raccoons, we have yeah, yeah, <laughs> coyotes, yeah. we have rabbits. So Some of those you don't want, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> including the deer, right? Don't they eat your no, stuff? No, but, the, but they have, they have been, their population is not that huge that I would say is like devastating the whole uh, crop that we have. And they prefer certain things that we can protect. Yeah, that we can protect and and other things so i think it's it's being able to also to protect that land right um and to engage different people in that land so yes it's true we can't grow enough vegetables to feed the whole community but i think the impact overall is very important and and we shouldn't lose sight of that and then to go back to the funding um that was your question actually before going to the funding i also wanted to say the other aspect of the farm that I think is worth noting is how much of a hub it is for some of the seniors in the community. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So African Food Baskets, who have actually been operating on the farm longer uh, than, you know, the, the, the Black Creek Community Farm when we started, um, is leading the seniors program and um, they run in partnership with us. So we do provide some of the workshops as well for, for that program. And some of the seniors also have plot of land where they do get opportunity to also grow their own vegetables. So one is also helping to reduce senior isolation and also be connections among seniors and is that mental health aspect our community does not have a large uh, tree canopy area whatever that um, um, terminology means so having the black creek mini farm i think one of the 
important things is making sure that the farm can be accessible for people to come and just enjoy that space mm-hmm. and to enjoy that beautiful space and be able to take f- for walks like you mentioned about seeing that huge bee on that sunflower like there's something very common right about being able to to connect um with nature in that way that you don't do when you live in a concrete jungle right yeah okay so what about the funding of the farm where do you guys get your money not from me not from my 135 dollars that i give for my csa or however much it is we get funding from multiple sources so we get funding from our own programs so um from selling of the vegetables from corporate programs so corporate volunteer engagement uh, programs from our farm school uh, programs as well so that's how we're able to make our revenue um, um, a part of our revenue. And also we get grants from, so we have a grant from the city of Toronto. And then we also have some grants from uh, foundations as well that supports the project. And then individual donations and... Very, very little. But yeah, yeah, some, yeah. some individual donations. Should we ask our listeners to give maybe a... Yes, definitely. How can our listeners despite all of the limits that we may be talking about, support the work of the Black Creek Community Farm. Yes, because honestly, we are a grassroots um, group and um, trying to sort of do our part in, 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 in this work. And unfortunately, we have to be very reliant on, on funding to be able to provide subsidies for our vegetables and to also be able to provide our outdoor environmental education programs for kids in our community. So you can go on our website, uh, blackcreekfarm.ca, um, and make a donation directly there. Well, there you go. Okay, so uh, but I want to sort of break down some of the funding stuff, if you don't mind. I'm curious because I'd like to, you know, it'd be interesting to see because part of the discussion about food sovereignty is about delinking from the commodification, privatization, and corporatization of food and control of food by big business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm guessing you guys do rely on, you did say something about corporate like employee uh, engagement and then of course the there's foundation money which i i'm guessing is like private foundation foundation funding okay yeah Yeah. so then what how does that what does that look like um in terms of percentage like our budget is less than six hundred thousand dollars um so we're not a huge organization Mm -hmm. but we're doing we're doing so much Right to grow over twenty thousand pounds of vegetables, to see over um, two thousand five hundred children, to do all the events and activities that we do, we do it with very little money, mm-hmm. and our numbers are very much in comparison with some of organizations that are that are like a million, three million um, dollars. Mm-hmm. So we're doing, you know, um, a lot uh, for a small amount, and our money is really municipal. So a good chunk of our money is from the city of Toronto. Another chunk is from the United Way of Toronto um, and also um, the the private foundations that I mentioned about and um, also our own revenue. Right. So, so really, like our money is so little. <laughs> and I guess the, the fundraiser dinner would be a source of the individual yeah, donations. Yeah. yeah, the fundraiser dinner would be a source for that. Okay, so that's when people come at the end of the year and they... 
buy a plate for $50 or something, right? No. <laughs> so it's, it's $100. $100. It's our fresh school style dinner. So we have um, about um, 18 vendors and people can go around and taste. Uh, and and that chefs. is another good way to support the farm as well. Yeah. Um, okay. So what about the management of the farm? What does that look like? So, well, maybe we could touch on the the corporate side of things a little bit because i mean we do receive you know some corp or, or historically anyway we receive some corporate funding from you know large food companies and you know there is you know the 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 irony or whatever you want to call it of you know we're trying to represent a different style of food system but we're still you know dependent or slightly dependent on the the corporate food system that we we may be critical of. But I would generalize it in the sense that we are not the only one within the food movement that are collecting money from the same people that we are trying to, you know what I mean? It's it's a big problem within the food movement, mm -hmm. not necessarily attached to just Black Creek Community Farm. That's money we got in the past and we haven't, but then again, you could say the same thing about some of the uh, foundations and things that we get money. We don't know how they're investing their monies and or where they invest. How they got their money? Or how they got their money? We don't know that, right? And so I think it's a problem of non for profits. The whole setup of non for profit. Mm -hmm. That's how I want to generalize it and not focus on one organization. Yeah, no, that's fair, and I think that's one of the you know, limits we hit up against uh, when we are trying to do this kind of work or any kind of activism and, and trying to sort of figure out how to make it sustainable, how to make sure you have money to right. fund it. But what about like sort of thinking into the, into the future? It seems like this is something that you, we would want the state to take more responsibility for, right? Like perhaps have the city and the province be the the full funders of projects like this or or, or even uh, you could go l more local i f i think even like a community like community supported agriculture that's the name of our you know uh food box program mm -hmm. or the that's the type of food box program we run but you could also i think generalize that to the to supporting the project as a whole like you know you could have the surrounding community of the farm you know, pay into um, supporting something that brings benefit to the neighborhood. I mean, isn't that like what, if the city were to support, isn't that ultimately what that would mean? Is the tax taxation would... Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I'm not against um, the city funding, funding it. I'm just saying, uh, I guess it would be a little bit more directly um, funded by the people who directly benefit from it if it was from... Can I offer a counter argument? I mean, I feel like, I mean, those people are on the lower end of the income scale in the city and to tie the farm's funding to their ability to support it is not a progressive sort of outlook in terms of like you know like well maybe the rich people in the city their money like their you know the the taxation that's taken in from their incomes and, yeah. and property taxes um, should be used to to fund uh, programs and farms and whatever else and parks in in uh, communities that are disadvantaged. Yeah, in the same way that they fund public um, community health centers. 
I think that food should be seen as a health um, related issue and in the same way that governments fund public health, they should fund food related activities. I was thinking about, you know, some of these experiments in participatory budgeting that they've they've been doing in some cities where the city doesn't directly decide on projects. It's the city gives money to neighborhoods and then the neighborhoods decide what that will be spent on, like in a kind of a democratic type of decision-making process. And that could be something, um, you know, like like maybe the community doesn't want to farm, <laughs> but maybe they do. Anyway, yeah, that's just an idea. Mm. Mm. Food security projects like the Black Creek Community Farm should um, receive money in the same way that community health centers receive money. Yeah. I think that will be better than leaving it up to participatory budgeting systems. Mm -hmm. Like I've been involved in some of those on a small scale through Toronto Community Housing. And it's not necessarily all the important things that get voted for is who mm -hmm. is popular and who's able to get their people down to vote. Um, and it can be problematic you oh, know that's fair i've never actually been involved in any of them i've just learned about it on a rather theoretical level about mm -hmm. democratizing the public sector but yeah it doesn't work it's just duplicating the same political system that we have but on a smaller scale who is the loudest who has the back in and who can draw in how many people to kind of come in and vote so i'm sure in some communities it probably has worked really well but I know that the one that I have been involved in on a number of years um, has not worked in that way. And so like wh whichever executive director of whichever nonprofit has the most pull and is able to bring people to the, some meeting to vote on the city's funds yeah, coming to the, yeah. their projects, Which that's I what you're sort of saying? Unless there's like a way to change that. I think on a theoretical level, that sounds very, it sounds progressive. Mm -hmm. But then on the ground, as we know, the way human beings are, it doesn't quite go that way. Yeah, and I think that in general, we, especially on the left, have uh, in recent sort of decades equated decentralization with democratization. But, you know, you can have a decentralized sort of arrangement and it's just like neighborhood elites who who manage the thing. And in some ways, it's like it's better to be centralized because then, yeah, and those those people can sort of be sidelined because you have a centralized rational authority that can that can hold them accountable and, and ensure that there's participation from 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 other people that aren't just those elites. But what I wanted to the other thing I wanted to sort of ask you guys about is that last time we had a broader discussion about food sovereignty uh, and even we we talked about sort of you know traditional society peasant culture and and so on and now we have sort of hyper focused in on the urban farm project that you guys are involved in and i wanted to sort of try and link those two discussions and ask you guys to sort of reflect on how they're linked in your minds well i mean i guess for me like it all just comes back to the need to transition away from fossil fuels and so we we have to make fairly drastic changes to how we do everything and traditional society for all of its faults was not dependent on fossil fuels and so if we're looking to 
get off of fossil fuels, we're probably going to be pursuing a lower energy type of lifestyle, which you might call traditional. <laughs> and there's going to have to there's there's going to be a transition towards you know th- those types of systems that are that are less energy intensive and more resilient in the face of dwindling uh, resources and whatnot. So that's my that's my perspective. And and I guess how does it relate to urban agriculture? Well, I mean, I, I think that's that's kind of about the fabric of the city that we're designing and how that's locking us into certain, you know, patterns of uh, consumption and uh, excessive transportation and food transportation kilometers and all that. I think was Cuba is a is a good example of of a city that uh, Havana I, I should say is a good example of a city that produced a lot of its vegetables on um, on vacant land. I think it's Havana. Any, anyway, the, like there's potential to to produce us obviously not our entire food supply. Like cities have always relied on on the the hinterlands, but not to the extent that they are that they do today. And, and them being able to do that and do that well and sharing knowledge farmer to farmer to grow food, to be able to feed people. And again, not to romanticize it, I'm sure there are some challenges and things there, but they've done it um, pretty well. So I think that's an area to look at. They did have the uh, benefit of a, of a socialist government uh, and central planning. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely that helps. But I think um, to in terms of your your last question um, is really looking at the fact that um, when we think about urban agriculture, when we think about food sovereignty and we think about food justice, the big sort of aspect for me is really looking at how we are dismantling how we can dismantle the current corporate commodified food system to develop in something that is centered on health and wellness and and feeding people so i think um yeah i'll leave it as that and cuba is an interesting example because they by american standards they have a lower standard of living right but they have a higher life expectancy as well, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they have comparable life expectancy to the global north. But yeah. but if you talk to any Cuban Canadians or Cuban Americans, they'll they'll tell you that Cubans are poor. Well, it depends on who you're talking to. It depends who you're talking to. Right, but uh, I mean, obviously, uh, it's a huge selection bias. All the Cubans who are now in America and Canada but I think the generality holds true that they're 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 poor I mean like but what they mean is that they don't have they don't have a lifestyle that's highly con- consumption driven and uh, energy intensive and they still have a very high quality of life and they their life expectancy is comparable as you were saying so I mean comp- comparing Cuba to the US is crazy it's a different, you know, what you compare Cuba to is like, is Ghana. Right. Okay, compared to Ghana, I, yeah, obviously Cuba is doing a lot better. And that says something about the uh, the way in which that society is organized. Cuba is a socialist, Ghana is a capitalist country, right? So I think 
we've been told that the only society that can live that that can survive or that is viable is capitalism right and there is a society that was built on a different system that is doing um better but if, and of course like given the starting point obviously as a society that before the revolution and even to this day is you know uh deals with lots of challenges in in terms of you know economic development so in fact cuba maybe is a good model for the third world but what if we were to apply if we were to use the technologies that we have access to and the organizational means that we have access to the economic resources that we have access to we could probably do a lot better uh, yeah and if we were to embrace a a more frugal individual um consumption lifestyle we would have more collective resources that we could put towards designing spaces and cities and and whatever that are of benefit to the collective like if you know if you are following what i'm saying it's yeah. it's it's not about making individuals rich it's about making our societies more pleasant places to live but at the same time living a very like frugal at the level of individual needs i guess well but at the same time we would we would end up in, you know improving collective or raising the uh, collective forms of consumption uh and so you know access to public libraries access to public transit access to community farms and parks and those kinds of collective forms of consumption which are not you know as environmentally destructive they're socially more harmonious yeah like when everybody is trying to pursue their own individual uh the the environmental resources just need to be that much greater as opposed to if we're if we're sharing like yeah public transit like you said and parks and yeah yeah well so we'll try and build that i guess one community farm at a time or should we do it the way the cubans did it i don't know <laughs> that's a good way to end it thanks for tuning in to this episode of oats for breakfast remember to subscribe if you haven't done so yet you can subscribe on any podcast app of your choice we're on itunes spotify podcast addict and whatever else you use if you want to help us out a bit more and you have itunes it really actually benefits us if you give us a, a rating and a review is that way uh, other people uh, have a higher chance of seeing the podcast come up on their feeds and of course you can also support us financially by becoming a patron and you can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast thanks again for tuning in we'll see you again soon